We are going to start a new series today uh, and over the next six weeks. So today, the month of August and the first Sunday in September, we are going to journey through the verses of First Peter together. You see there on uh, kind of the subtitle or really the title of the series, it says, Where We Fit in the Story of God, where we fit in the story of God. We're going to read today's section together, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll come back and work through them uh, in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says this. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, (coughs) excuse me, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Turn to somebody and say, grace and peace be yours in abundance. We don't really talk that way, do we? But it's a cool thing to speak over somebody's life. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith." The salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that is to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for inspiring Peter, this core right-hand disciple of Jesus, to send his letters to the church. God, thank you for the chance we have over the next few weeks to study your word, to dive into his advice, his wisdom that he shares with the church here in First Peter, God, we ask that you would help all of us to apply it to our lives. God, make us more like Jesus because we studied this book over these six weeks. And we thank you for the opportunity to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. amen. Peter is perhaps not the most famous author in Scripture, right? Like we don't think of him so much as having written Scripture like we may think of Paul or David or some others. But Peter is perhaps one of the most famous people who did write Scripture, right? Like we're very familiar with Peter. We can probably name a a number of incidents from Peter's life. Peter, I think, is probably the most prominently featured of all of the disciples in the Gospels. Peter had this problem that some of us suffer from and that he would act first and think later. 
right? And so Peter does some really incredible things and some really awful things. Peter, I think we can identify with because he has kind of this up and down relationship with Jesus. He has some amazing highlights and some incredibly low moments. Josh already referenced, I think, that Peter denied Jesus three times, right? We know that he did that. He famously was rebuked by Jesus a couple of times. Once Peter said something and Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. That leaves a mark, right? When your teacher, your rabbi, your savior, your Lord calls you Satan because he's speaking to the spirit behind what Peter was saying. What was Peter saying at that moment? Peter was saying, hey, Jesus, you're not going to die. We're not going to let you die. And Jesus said, no, this is God's plan. This is my purpose. If you're going to stand in the way of that plan, you're working for the enemy. So Peter was rebuked on multiple occasions. He was rebuked on another occasion. He, as Jesus is getting arrested, Peter's the first one to draw out his sword, and he starts swinging his sword. And I always wonder, and the Bible doesn't tell us, so I may never know, at least not on this side of heaven, was he trying to cut the dude's ear off, or was he trying to cut his head off and he missed? I don't know. Uh, but, but for some reason, he takes an ear off of one of these people trying to arrest Jesus. Uh, and Jesus, rather than giving him you know, a fist bump, thanks, you got my back, Jesus rebukes him, grabs the ear off the ground, and puts it back on. And the ear regenerates, uh, which had to be just this amazing moment as you're arresting this man about to take him to prison, and he's healing you. Right? Um, the... the heaviness of that had to be incredible. So Peter had some lows. Peter had some amazing highs as well. Peter was the first disciple when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Everybody else might say something, but who do you say? Peter's the one who comes out and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, I declare now that you're not just Simon, which was his old name. Now you're Peter, because Peter means rock. And on this rock of this declaration of faith, I will build my church Man, on the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, that's what the, how the church is going to be built. Peter was famously given the honor of preaching on the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit descends and, and comes to fill the believers in Jesus. And as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved. What an honor. What an incredible moment. Peter and John are going to the temple to worship, and they encounter this lame man, this beggar by the temple gate called Beautiful. And Peter's the one who speaks up. The guy says, hey, can you spare some change? And Peter says, hey, I don't have any silver, and I don't have any gold. But what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man who'd been paralyzed for decades this man who'd been lame for decades gets up and he walks as a testimony to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Peter had some low moments, but he had some amazing high moments as well. But what the Bible doesn't tell us, but history teaches us, is that Peter eventually ends up moving to Rome, to the, the capital city of the Roman Empire, and begins to pastor there in Rome. He begins to, to reach out to this pagan community to this area that is surrounded by worship of all of these idols and all of these other gods. Man, he begins to share Jesus right there in the midst of this very sinful culture. 
And we believe that he was in Rome when he wrote this letter. We don't know exactly where he was, but, but the belief of the church is that he was in Rome as he writes this letter. And he writes this letter to five churches, or f- five regions, excuse me, uh, to the east of him. And we'll dig into that in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share with you just a, a few things that we should ask when we study the Bible. Four questions we should always ask when we study the Bible. When you're studying the Bible on your own, when you reopen the Word of God, when we study here at church, here's not the four questions. This isn't an exhaustive list, but these are four good questions to start with as we examine Scripture and figure out how to apply it and understand it. Number one, what did it mean to the original author and original readers? Why does it matter who wrote it? Because we want to understand What was his perspective? Where was he coming from? What was he trying to communicate? Why does it matter who he wrote it to? Well, the same thing. We're trying to get into the context so we can understand what was this really about? What was its original purpose? Why was it written by this individual to these other individuals at a specific point in history? Uh, So that's the first question we are going to ask. The second one is this. What does this passage teach us about God? What can we learn about him? What does it teach us about his nature, about his character, about his expectations, about his love? What does it teach us about God? The third question you can probably predict after that. What does this passage teach us about people, about ourselves? What does it say about us? What does it say about our brokenness, about our sin nature? What does it say about our purpose as believers, as Christians? What does it say about our potential, what God wants to see done in our lives? What does this passage tell us about us? And then lastly, right along the same lines, how does it apply today? So what did it mean back then? What does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about me? And what does it How can I apply it today? How does this relate to the world that we live in? You probably inferred from the title of this series that we're going to see a lot of what does this teach us about ourselves in this book. Peter writes to the church about Christians telling them what is your place? What is your role in the story of God? What Peter's going to do is in five short chapters, he's going to reference the Old Testament 22 times. 22 times he's going to quote from the Old Testament, weaving together the story of God from the past, bringing it to this point when he's writing 2,000 years ago, and obviously applying it into the future for us today. And so he's going to say, here's what's happened, here's what we do with it now, here's what it means for us, here's how it connects. Peter has a lot to say about the ongoing story of God. He references the Old Testament over and over, and then he applies that story of God to us as Christians. Where do I fit? What is my role? How should we live? Remember this, as we study any scripture, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 declares famously that all scripture is God-breathed. So as we open the Bible today, as we read God's word today, remember this is breathed out from God himself. As we open the word, God is he's breathing on his people. And not only is he breathing on us, he's breathing life into us. He's breathing fresh air into us. He's breathing encouragement into us. It says that the scripture is now useful for four things. It's useful for teaching. That's what we're doing today, right? It's useful for rebuking. That's when you got to stand up and say, hey, no, this is not the life that God has for you. This is not the, the best thing that God has designed you for. There is a time that we're going to have to 
lovingly rebuke. The same way that Jesus lovingly rebuked Peter, right? Uh, there's a time for correcting. Correcting is a little more gentle. It's when you're off just a little bit. And, hey, let's, let, let's straighten that path out. Um, and it's useful for training in righteousness. So the word of God is useful to teach, to correct, to rebuke, to train in righteousness. And then for what? Verse 17 gives us the why. So that the servant of God, everybody say, that's me. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the purpose of Scripture is that you would not be sort of equipped, so that you would not be, man, half moderately, mediocrely equipped. God has given us his word so you can be thoroughly equipped, so you can have all that you need for every good work. In other words, God doesn't want you to miss opportunities. God wants you to be ready for the chances he puts in your life, and that's why he's given us his word. So with that context, with that in mind, let's journey back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We'll go through these together. First verse says this, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's an apostle? An apostle is a foundational servant of God, person of God that the church is built on. An apostle is someone who who has leadership over many churches, not just a pastor who has leadership over a single church, but but God has been given given this person the authority over a large section of churches. The original disciples, all 12 of them with the exception of Judas, were apostles. The Bible tells us of other apostles, Paul being the most famous one. There are a couple others who are listed there. We can infer that anyone who wrote scripture was given the role of apostle. So Luke was an apostle. The author of Hebrews was an apostle. Mark was an apostle. There were a number of apostles, but Peter is perhaps the most prominent one. Perhaps the most well-known one, right? This is the guy that we have the best look at his life. We know what he went through. We know what makes him tick. And here he is now sharing with us. Man, his thoughts on the church. This is what he was passionate about, what God inspired him to share. So he declares, I'm writing this. There are many who think that, that Peter didn't actually, excuse me, sit down and pen this himself, that he had a scribe or, or what's called an amanuensis who actually wrote this down for him. They infer that because the Greek is actually really strong, and Peter, being from Galilee, probably, didn't, probably wasn't a great student of Greek language. Uh, and so he may not have physically written this with his own hand, but he was the one who narrated it. He was the one who spoke, uh, and then somebody else wrote it down with maybe a little bit better grammar. So uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. What's the elect? That's the church. The people that God said, I'm bringing you in to my family. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, you might recognize a couple of words in that list of five places. You probably recognize Asia, right? Well, this is a different Asia than what we think of as Asia, and I'll explain that in a minute. And if you're a little more biblical, you probably recognize the word Galatia uh, because Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. Uh, And so where are these places? I brought a map for you, if you'll throw that up for me. Um, It's not the most uh, high-definition map, but I apologize for that. This is the best one I could find. This area that's circled in red, these are these five specific regions. Paul, or Peter is writing from Rome. If you look in the very top left-hand corner of the map, you can see Rome. Uh, it's the last dot in the top left. And so he's writing 
and sending this east into Asia. This is what is now the, what we would call modern-day Turkey. Uh, and so modern-day Turkey, this nation east of Greece, uh, had different provinces in it, different regions in it, known as Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. And so Peter is specifically writing to Christians in this area. Why? They were going through a persecution. The persecution was beginning against the church, specifically in this area, and it's about to explode. It's about to increase even more. He's writing to them in an area that is very much not following Jesus. In fact, we'll even see in the NIV in chapter 2, we'll come to a section that has a title called Living Godly Lives in a Pagan Society. Uh, Now, that is not inspired word of God. That's what people after the fact have come in and kind of divided the Bible up to say, hey, here's the theme of this next little section. Um, But it's in there for a reason because that's what Peter's writing about. How do I live a godly life in an ungodly world? How how do I represent Jesus? How do I walk in holiness? In fact, next week we're going to talk a lot about holiness. How do I live a holy life in an unholy world? How do I live up to the expectations that God has on me when everything around me seems so contrary to what God is actually asking? These are the questions that Peter is going to unpack for us over the next few weeks. These are why these are so important for us to evaluate. Because even though there are a lot more Christians in modern-day America, especially here in the South, than there were at this time where Peter was writing the letter, Our culture certainly is moving away from the things that God would have us to do and the lives that God would have us to live. And so we're going to start having these questions more and more in our own life. How do I live the life that God wants for me when it seems like nobody around me is so interested in doing that? Verse 2 says, hey, I'm writing to these people in these five areas who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter makes it clear that they're not accidental believers. You you didn't start following Jesus by accident. This is not just a coincidence. God knew before they were ever born, before they were ever created, that they would be followers of Jesus God has sanctified them. That means to be made holy. When it says you've been sanctified, you've been made holy. What does holy mean? Holy means set apart. So God has set them apart through his spirit, the Holy Spirit. If anyone's qualified to set someone apart and make someone holy, it's the Holy Spirit, right? By the way, this may have been written for the people in these five regions in Turkey, but it is still applicable to God's church today. You have been sanctified. You have been set apart, not by your own good works, not by your own good actions, but by the Spirit of God himself has said, I'm setting you apart. I'm declaring you different. I'm sanctifying you. And then Peter says, and you are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, that that blood that dissolves the power of sin, that breaks the bondage to slavery, to sin, that you have been washed in it, you have been sanctified, and now because of it, you are different. You're different. 
He's encouraging the church. These things have been done to you. These things have been done for you to make you obedient to Jesus Christ. He's going to teach us how do we be obedient to Jesus. How can we walk in that? Verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this phrase. It pops up a number of places in the New Testament. Paul also uses it. It's a, it's a reminder when we praise God, we're not praising an anonymous God. We're not praising some, man, universal idea of God. We're praising a very specific God who sits on the throne, the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who sent Jesus to us. The idea of God generally is not especially offensive in our culture. People are, are generally okay with God. Jesus gets a little more offensive. And so this declaration, we're praising one specific God. We're praising a God who sent to us Jesus Christ, who's the way and the truth and the life. He's the one that we praise. In his great mercy, in God's great mercy, he's given us new birth. Everybody say new birth. Don't you love new birth? You haven't had a chance to, to be around any new babies lately. If you weren't here last week or if you missed out, we need to let you know that, that Pastor Braden and Callie uh, have brought a, a new child into the world. This is Easton Holly, uh, who was born, uh, is now you know, the newest member of City Church. Uh, he's, I think, 13 days old, if my math is right, maybe 12, somewhere in there. Uh, he's been around for less than two weeks. Uh, and so Easton has, has made his arrival. We got, you know, a proud uh, uncle sitting on the front row, uh, another uncle on the second row. We got a proud great uncle and great aunt back here in the middle. So Easton's got some family here, but he's got some more extended family, right? The church family that God's brought him into. Don't you love being around a baby? There's just something about new birth. There's something about life, man. They're, they're a joy, especially when they're not yours, uh, right? Like, especially when you can have a moment with them. Uh, and no, it doesn't have to be at 3 o'clock in the morning when they're hungry. Uh, it's, it's such a joy to be around new birth. I think God compares new Christians to new birth for, for a number of reasons, but, but one of them is because, man, there's something that happens to people when we're around new life. As Christians, we got to be around new life. we got to see new people coming into the family of God. We've got to be reaching new people and seeing new life because if we don't, we can start to get a little stale. We can start to get a little judgmental. It's when churches start turning on each other. Start gossiping about one another because we get so focused on stuff that isn't the main thing. The main thing is reproducing, is bringing new life. The first command in Scripture that God gave to people was to be fruitful and multiply. I don't think that was just a physical thing. I think that was a foreshadow in the physical realm of what God wanted to do in the spiritual realm. That we have got to be fruitful. And so Peter makes this comparison to new birth, which we see a couple of other places in the New Testament. He says, God and his Jesus and his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope. Sing that song, right? He's my living hope. Comes from this phrase right here in 1 Peter 1 through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so you, when you came to Jesus, you experienced a new birth. 
You were born again, as Jesus calls it in John chapter 3. You had a physical birth however long ago that you can't remember, and I think it's by God's grace that we can't remember because that would be a very traumatic thing to be able to remember, right? So God doesn't allow us to remember things until we're a little bit older. We don't have to remember somebody changing our diaper, praise God. Like, that would be traumatic. God just kind of blocks all that stuff out when we're too young to take care of ourselves so we can remember good things and not all this stuff that would be highly embarrassing for us. But man, we had a new birth experience, right? We were born, but then he says, now you've got this living hope. So as a Christian, you have a point in time where you came into the family of God. You can look back on and celebrate that because that's not embarrassing and that's not blocked out. We can celebrate our new birth moment, but it doesn't stop there. He says, you had a new birth and now you have a living hope. It's a hope that carries on. It's a hope that carries through. You may have been around some people who came to Jesus and got really excited for a moment and then it burned out and they went right back to their old life. The parable of the sower talks about people like this, right? Who, who man, the seed, it grows really fast, but then it withers, then it gets choked out, then it, then it fades. That's not God's design for you. God's design for you is a new birth followed by a living hope. A hope that carries you through, that propels you through, that moves you forward in faith with Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Man, this week, I'm going to call somebody out. Corey Pilcher texted me a few times about the lottery this week. And how he was believing God, he was going to be given the greatest tithe in the history of City Church. Uh, he, t- he told me to be ready. Uh, God was about to blow this place up, and I, I have bad news. Corey did not win the lottery. Uh, he's not our newest billionaire, sadly. Uh, so it didn't, didn't quite work out that way. If he had, he would have had quite an inheritance to pass on to his children, right? He would have had something great to share with the kids, the, the, the three daughters that God has blessed him with. Well, you have a God who doesn't need to win the lottery. You have a God who has so much more than that. And he has adopted you into his family and he's written you into his will. You have an inheritance, and man, my parents are at the place in life, and they might be watching this morning, so if they are, shout out, and David and Marilyn Souten, love you. Um, my parents are, are at the point in life where they talk about their impending death. Uh, they know that they're going to die, and they talk about it, and it can be a little bit uncomfortable, and one thing they often talk about is like, here, where's the will? Don't forget, here's where the will is, here's where the key is, here's how you get in, here's what you got to do, like, if, if, if anything happens to us, here's where the will is, and, I, and I'm grateful that they have made preparations for us, right? But why are they so paranoid about us knowing about where the will is? Because something can happen to that will, right? Because that will is not guaranteed. That passing that on to their children is not automatic. There are certain things that have to happen, and there are certain things that could destroy the will, right? A fire could destroy the will. The will could get stolen. It could disappear. Things could happen to the will, so they're constantly checking to make sure the will's still there. The will's still good, making sure we know where, what to do when they pass. We have an inheritance as believers that can never perish, that can never spoil, that can never fade. No Congress can come in and increase the tax on your inheritance in Jesus Christ, right? Nothing can happen to jeopardize it. It is indestructible. In fact, that's what I want you to write down if you're taking notes today, that you have an inheritance that is indestructible. 
Man, God has set it aside for you, and that means it's there. It will always be there. Nothing can change it. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus very famously had this conversation on the Sermon on the Mount. Peter was an eyewitness to this sermon. He was right there as Jesus preached, and in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he talks about storing up treasure in heaven. Because he says, man, when you put your treasure in heaven, moth and vermin cannot destroy it. Rust cannot come in and damage it. That if you store your treasure in heaven, it's there forever. And now Peter says, hey, not only do you need to store up treasure in heaven, but God's already stored up treasure in heaven for you. He's written you into his inheritance, and it's for you. It's yours. Now, please understand, this is not about you're going to be rich in heaven, right? This means the, the blessings of eternity are yours, that everything that is God's, he's giving you access to. Yes, there are mansions and there are streets of gold and there's man, all, things that we can't even wrap our brains around and fathom. But the greatest inheritance we have is the presence of God. That's what makes it heaven. That's what makes it the place that everyone wants to be is because when we're in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. No $1.2 billion lottery can guarantee you that. In fact, I was joking with Corey this week. I was like, man, I'm sure you've read the stories, man, of what happens to all these people that win the lottery. Like, most of them are miserable. Most of them hate life. And it's like, well, if I tithe on it, then my 90% will be blessed, and I won't have to be miserable, right? It's like, I can't really argue with that. Maybe those people didn't tithe. I don't know. Didn't happen. Maybe next time. Uh, but, But this is an inheritance, that is fully blessed. Man, that there is no question, there is no doubt, there is no worry. Peter declares for them, reminds them it is indestructible. Verse 5, he says, Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As believers, as followers of Jesus, you are shielded by God's power. As a kid growing up, we, we were really in this idea of like a force field. And if you were playing like some imaginary game, if you put up a force field, nobody could penetrate that. Nobody could hurt that, right? You, you have a force field in Jesus. You are shielded by God's power. In fact, I want to encourage some parents with this because Thursday our kids go back to school. They're not going to that school by themselves. They're going to school shielded by the power of God. Now, as parents, we need to claim that over them. We need to pray that over them. We need to believe that for them. But you need to be encouraged if you've got some concerns, some anxiety about your kids starting school on Thursday. Or maybe you are a student going back to school starting Thursday. Or maybe you're a teacher going back to school or an administrator, whatever that situation might be. You need to know that God is shielding you. God is protecting you. He's protecting your heart. He's protecting your mind. He's got his protection on you wherever you go, not just in a public school, but that's the timely thing of what's going on right now, right? God's protecting. What does it say? It says, through faith, you are shielded by God's power, not temporarily, not when you come to church, 
right? Not when you're surrounded by other believers. You are, sur- you are protected, shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, until Jesus comes back and we fully receive our inheritance, our salvation, God's power is shielding you and protecting you. And somebody needs to say amen to that. We get so worried sometimes. We get so caught up in, in all the stuff going on in the culture and all the stuff that's coming out. Man, or, or maybe your, your man, school shootings are in the news and, and all this stuff. And we got COVID and all this stuff to fear about. And now there's monkeypox. And what happens if that breaks out in the school? And we got so many things to be concerned about. We need to remember we are shielded by God's power. By faith. Faith. Is your faith there today? If it's not, start building it. Start increasing it. Where does faith come from? It comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Why do we study the Word of God? Because we've got to build the faith of God's people. Amen? Amen. Verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he says, look, you've got God's shield, you've got his protection of his power, you've got this inheritance that cannot rust or fade, it's indestructible. We've got a whole lot to greatly rejoice about. But understand this, being a Christian is great, but it is not a get-out-of-suffering-free card. Right? Like a lot of times, we can, we can make Christianity out to be this amazing, perfect thing where, man, nothing's ever going to go wrong, and that's not the promise of God. In fact, the Word of God tells us that in the midst of this great joy, there will be some suffering. There will be some things that don't go the way we want them to. Why? Because we live in a fallen, broken world. We live in a world that is not living up to God's design for it. So, yeah, there's going to be sickness. There's going to be disease. There's going to be shootings. Right? All those things, they, they happen. Now, God's protecting his people and shielding his people in the midst of them, but it doesn't mean we're never going to suffer. It doesn't mean we're never going to say goodbye to somebody that we love. It doesn't mean we're never going to lose a job or go through a season of financial hardship. Right? And, and the mistake I think that sometimes we make is we assume that if we go through something painful, that means that we're not serving God well. Because, man, if I was serving God, I wouldn't be going through anything. And Peter, man, this rock that Jesus is building his church on, this man who who is used to write scripture says, look, you may greatly rejoice right now, and you should, but for a little while, you may have to suffer great loss and great grief and all kinds of trials. Does that mean that we abandon the faith and we go out to the world? Absolutely not. Because the world has much greater loss and much greater suffering and much greater pain. In fact, the world suffers in such a way that they mourn and they grieve as those who have no hope. Praise God, we have hope. We have a living hope named Jesus Christ. But understand this, just because something goes wrong in your life doesn't mean that you blew it as a Christian. Now, sometimes you may have, right? Sometimes we bring pain into our life. And I'm not saying just because something bad happened means you are living a beautiful Christian life, right? Like sometimes things happen and we need to receive that conviction. Hey, I stepped out of line. I brought this into my own life and, and received that from the Holy Spirit. But even if you got it all together, even if you're, you're doing all that God is asking of you, there's going to be some, still some suffering on this side of heaven. But I love the way Peter phrases it, for a little while. 
He has this eternal perspective. There is so much more out there. There's this little bitty dot of suffering that we're in right now, and it may seem like it takes forever. I know when I had COVID, it seemed like I was never getting rid of that thing. Uh, man, the, 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 the fatigue and the weariness, it seemed like it was never going away. It was like two and a half, three weeks. I don't know. Uh, it was a long three weeks, right? Man, we may suffer for a little while. You may suffer a lot longer than three weeks, but it's a little while. Man, it's... We've got to keep that eternal perspective. Verse 7. Those who have come, so that the, or these have come, these sufferings, these trials, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ, Jesus Christ is revealed. So he says that your faith is worth even more than gold. Gold is refined by fire, but a day comes when even gold will perish. It will not last forever. It can outlast fire, but it can't outlast this world. This world is going to be destroyed, and it's going to end, and gold will end with it. But your faith is greater than that. It's more valuable than that. And in the same way that gold may be refined by fire, our faith is refined sometimes by suffering. Even that suffering can bring us closer to God, even though that may not be God's plan or his design for us to always experience those things. But if we'll allow him to, he's going to work all things together for our good and for his glory. In fact, that's the next thing I want you to write down is that God works our suffering for our good and for his glory. He works our suffering for our good and for God's glory. I don't know what suffering you're going through today, but know this. God's in it. I'm not saying he's causing it. I'm not saying he, he wants it for you, but he's working in the middle of it on your behalf to bring it for your good and for his glory. Amen? Amen. I know many of us have seen this and experienced this in our lives. Verse 8. Now he says this, and I love this, when you put it in the context of who's saying it and what he's experienced. He says, though you have not seen him, him being Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Amen. Peter was blessed to be an eyewitness of Jesus. And yet, despite his status as an eyewitness, he is amazed by the faith of those who believe without seeing. You weren't there. You didn't have the benefit of, of seeing him on the cross and then seeing him risen again. You didn't have the benefit of seeing him feed 5,000 and walk on water and heal lepers and raise the dead. You didn't get to see all the stuff that I saw. But because of the Holy Spirit, he's implanted in you faith and you believe in it even though you didn't see it. See, Peter was there in the upper room in John chapter 20 when Jesus comes into the room and reveals himself to Thomas, right? Verse 29, it says, Then Jesus told him, him being Thomas, Because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Peter says, you didn't see, but you believe. He's inferring and referring back to this blessing that Jesus promised on your life and on mine. I don't know about you, but I've never seen Jesus face to face. I know there are modern-day believers who have. I believe that there are visions, and people have, have had experiences, and I think that those are the exception and not the rule, right? For the vast, vast majority of us, we're not going to see Jesus on this side of heaven, but we're going to see him. And there's a blessing, a special blessing on our life because we believe even though we haven't seen 
Verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation is a momentary experience, right? It's that new birth when we first enter into the kingdom of God, but it's also a process. And here Peter refers to the process. You are receiving. God is constantly downloading into your system, man, greater blessings, greater aspects of salvation, a greater understanding how to apprehend the things that he's already made available to you. You are receiving ultimately the end result of faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So he says these prophets all through history, all these people who wrote the Old Testament, which he's going to start referencing and quoting very, very shortly. He said they were just looking forward to Jesus. They were trying to see where Jesus was going to come. They were trying to lean on the Spirit. When is he actually going to show up? Verse 12, he says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you. Why was the word of God written? It was written for us. Why were these prophecies written down? They were written down for us. They were there, they're there to bless us. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into those things. What's he saying? He's saying, man, even the prophets looked forward to Jesus coming, and the angels couldn't wait to see what would really happen. What's it really going to be like when God comes as a human? They, they anticipated this. They looked forward to this. And now we live with the rear view. We get to look back at what they always looked forward to, but we also get to look forward to the return of Jesus. So we're in the in-between times. We've got Jesus to look back on. We've got Jesus to look forward to. We've got Jesus who lives in us through his Holy Spirit. And over the next few weeks, we're going to discover what does that mean for the way that we live. How does that affect our life? How does that draw us to holiness? If we've already been set apart by the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to live a holy life? Well, Peter's going to unpack that for us, and we're going to dig into that together. I would encourage you this week uh, to read the end of chapter 1, 1 Peter. In fact, I'd read the whole first chapter, um, and then I believe, and I should have wrote this down, uh, I think we're going through verse 11 next week, uh, but I'll make sure and get that posted on social so you can read everything that we're going to study next week in service and be ready for that. I think God's going to speak. He's going to make us better and stronger believers because we open his word together over the next